Now, Job is, in some senses, a very well-known book. At least the opening chapters, the kind of initial story about Job is a very well-known portion of Scripture, I think, for most people. In another way, Job is a very unknown book because once you get out of the first two chapters, you get into a very difficult section of Scripture. It's hard to read. It's hard to follow. It is what you would call dense or high uh, Hebrew poetry. And so it's not easy to figure out what's going on. And I don't say that as someone, you know, from a lofty height of knowledge that does know what's going on. I say that from experience. It's difficult to really follow the book of Job. And so in some senses, it's a wonderful book. It's one of my favorite books. In other areas, it's a very, very challenging book. And one of the reasons I think that the book of Job is so challenging is because it's a big book, but it's also a book that has to be looked at in detail, but also in an overview almost at the same time. With many books of the Bible, you can go to a chapter here or a chapter there. You know, in the book of Genesis, there is a whole overarching theme and story. But if you want to go and read about the flood, you can pick out a few chapters and read about the flood. You can read about creation, the fall. You can read about Abraham or the last several chapters about Joseph. And you can kind of have this isolated little um, narrative that you can learn from. You can pick passages out of the Gospels or out of the letters and really have a good study and grasp of at least that little microcosm of that book. But with the book of Job, except for the first two chapters, you really cannot do that. You can't just go, for example, to Job chapter 13 and really have a great understanding of that chapter, or then go on to Job 25 or any chapter really within the book. It all really goes together. And hopefully as we put this overview together tonight, you'll see why that is. And I hope that gives you a foundation to go and study. Now that doesn't mean that you can't dig into the details. Really, in some ways, we need to dig into the details. And we can't do that tonight because this is just an overview. But I lay that groundwork so we know some of the challenge or challenges that confront us when we come to the book of Job. It has to be... I think, studied and read and, and meditated on with the whole picture. And so hopefully uh, we'll be able to get some of that tonight as we do an overview. So I've already mentioned a little bit of this, but as we've built um, our lessons, we've kind of looked at this timeline, so to speak, of the, the Bible. We've gone through the books of history. Uh, the first 17 books of the Bible are what we call historical books. Now, the first five are especially uh, known as the Pentateuch. They contain the law. So Leviticus might not be considered really a historical book. It is a giving of the law. But these first 17 chapters or books of the Old Testament, they cover the entirety of Old Testament history. Even though you're not even halfway through the Old Testament, when you finish those 17 books, you've covered the entire history from creation uh, up through the time of Malachi, which is about four centuries before the birth of Christ. But then we begin this new section uh, that's known as the wisdom literature or the poetic books, and that includes Job and Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Now, most of the wisdom literature, it takes place during the monarchy period. Much of it's written by Solomon, such as Proverbs and probably Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Many of the Psalms are written by David, uh, but there are some Psalms that are written even by Moses. 
there are some psalms that may have even been exilic and were put together and put into the Psalter post-exile uh, or return. So really, psalms covers a big area. We're considering Job, and I've put Job over here in the patriarchal era, and we'll talk about that here in a little while, but that's, that's not... 100% certain, as you'll see in just a moment. But we're getting into the books of poetry, and tonight, of course, we're considering Job. So as we talk about Job, now one of the things we've done with some of the books is we've talked about the title, why is it called, what it is called. This is Genesis, is the book of beginnings. Exodus tells primarily about the departure or the exodus from Egypt. Job is clearly named after, uh, I will say, one of the main characters. I really won't say that Job is the main character. I think that God is the main character in the book of Job uh, in a subtle way. But obviously Job is the primary focus, is the one who... Um, is attacked by Satan, who goes through suffering. It's him and his friends who are having this theological debate throughout the book. So it centers around Job. And so we might ask, well, who is Job? Uh, for a book that's this long and takes up this much space, we would think that maybe we know a lot about Job. But the truth is, we really don't. All the information that we have on Job is found in this book. And really, the only biographical information that we know is those first five verses. And then I should have put this up there, but the very end of the book, the very last few verses of chapter 42, tell us about uh, the latter years of his life. But that's pretty sparse information. Uh, but then he is mentioned a couple of other times in scripture. Ezekiel mentions him in uh, Ezekiel chapter 14. He mentions Job twice. And then in the New Testament, he is mentioned by James. And so he is mentioned in other places of the Bible. But even those verses don't really tell us anything about him other than his steadfastness and his perseverance. But what we do learn about him is, first of all, he lived in a land called Uz. We'll look at the geography here in just a moment. Uh, there's not a lot we know there other than that he lived in a place called Uz. We are told that he is righteous. This is one of the first things that we're told about Job is that he was a man who was blameless and upright and he feared the Lord and he shunned evil. And so we learn that he is a righteous man. This is corroborated uh, and exemplified again in Ezekiel and James. Uh, we find that he was the father of 10 children, at least initially. Then he has another 10 children later on in life. Uh, but he was a father. He had a family. We learn that he was very wealthy. The opening verses of Job tell us about all of the livestock and the, the vast amount of herds that he owned and that he was a great, great man. We can see he was a respected man. The opening verses of Job tell us that he was uh, considered one of the greatest or the greatest man in the East. Um, there's things that Job says throughout the book that seem to indicate he may have been uh, one of the elders of the cities that he lived in. Some commentators might even think that it's possible that Job was a king or some high-ranking official since he is called the greatest man of the East. And all of these, uh, this is really what we know, but I do want to underscore the fact that Job is a real historical individual. Some people have read the book of Job, and especially because it is kind of an epic poem. Uh, the vast majority of Job is written in poetry, and even the narrative sections, chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 42, have some poetic elements about them. 
And so since it is this kind of epic uh, poetic narrative or uh, poem, some people have thought maybe this is just an allegory, maybe this is just a legend, or maybe this is just uh, some made-up individual trying to teach us some good principles. But when Ezekiel refers to Job, he refers to him along uh, with other men like Noah and other historical figures. When James refers to Job, he doesn't refer to him as some myth or some legend. He refers to him as a literal historical figure. And we may not know a lot about Job, but we do know that he is a real person. And the events that we read about in the book of Job are historical things. So a few of these other uh, contextual issues, we've talked about geography and where things take place when we've looked at some of the Bible uh, books in the past. Now, as I mentioned, we're told that Job lived in the land of Uz. In this uh, map here, and I know that's kind of small, you might not be able to see it, this tiny section here would be the land of Canaan. Of course, here's Egypt and the Mediterranean Sea. And this map has placed Uz right here, just southeast of the Dead Sea, just southeast of uh, Judah or of the land of Canaan. And that seems to be one of the best estimates for the land of Uz. Without getting into a lot of the details, there seem to be some connections to uh, Edom and to the descendants of Esau, to to some of the descendants of Abraham through his second wife, uh, Keturah. And we know that Edom, uh, it's not on the map here, but Edom is right here to the southeast. Moab is just a little north of that. Also, this land down here is Midian. Some think that's where, think that Moses wrote the book of Job and that maybe it was during his time in Midian that he heard the story. Uh, And so maybe that helps us think that Uz is here. We do hear in the early chapters that there were raids by Sabaeans and by Chaldeans. And this is the Arabian Peninsula. The southern area was Sheba, where the Sabaeans would have come from. Of course, over here is Chaldea. Uh, Babylon is over here. And so it's somewhere in between these places, you would imagine, if there's raiders coming from both of those places. And so some, and it's also known as the east. Now that would be, to the Israelite mind, that's basically anything east of the Jordan River would be considered the east. So it could be immediately east of the Jordan River. It could be all the way over in Chaldea. But somewhere in this vicinity is likely where Uz um, is. And there is one verse that's interesting in Lamentations 4.21. Uh, there Jeremiah says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. And so there seems to be a very close connection with Uz and the land of Edom. So it makes sense that Uz is somewhere in that same vicinity. Now again, can we prove that definitively? No, but that seems to be the best guess. Now what about the time frame? This is a uh, an interesting question. We always like to know, you know, when did these things take place? And with the book of Job, we wonder, okay, when did this take place? Some people think that the events of Job are actually a pre-flood story because of the uh, the descriptions of uh, some great beasts like behemoth and leviathan. Some people have identified those with dinosaurs potentially, uh, and maybe some large animals that were pre-flood. And so maybe the story of Job takes place before the flood even happens. Uh, So pre-Genesis 6. Others think it might be a story during the time of the patriarchal period. That'd be the time between Abraham uh, and the Mosaic Covenant. So that's a a big time frame. That's about 600 years. That's where some place it. And then some say maybe even later. Maybe this is uh, post-Mosaic Covenant, but it's clearly, if it is, it's not about 
Hebrew or Jewish people. There's no references to the law of Moses. There's no references to Moses himself, to the temple, to Jerusalem, to any of the things that we would think to find in this book if it were written about an Israelite, especially post Moses' life. I think probably the best guess is sometime in the patriarchal age, uh, probably sometime after Abraham. There's a few things that might indicate this. First of all, Job's age. We're told at the end of the book, after these events take place, that Job lived another 140 years. Now, when these events took place, he already had 10 children, at least some, if not all of whom, appear to have been grown adults. So this man is probably in his 40s, 50s, 60s, when the events of Job, take, Job 1 and 2 take place. And then he lives another 140 years. This man lived somewhere in the vicinity of 200 years. Now, either that was a miraculous thing and very rare for his time, or that fits the lifespans of those like Abraham and, and Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph. It fits the lifespans of that era of history, that patriarchal time. Also, the fact that Job's wealth is measured in livestock. As you get later and later in history, uh, wealth is determined, like when you get to Solomon's time, wealth is determined in gold and money and possessions. But when we read about wealth in times of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, how is their wealth determined? It's by their livestock. It's how many herds they have and how many animals they have. That's how Job's wealth is recorded, and so it matches there. Job seems to be functioning as a family priest. We see him offering sacrifices for his family, uh, praying for his family, filling the role of a patriarch, much like Abraham did, and then Isaac and Jacob in that period of time. And so it fits that age as well. And then another interesting piece that's not here, um, the name Yahweh is very rarely used in the book of uh, Job. It, typically, when they refer to God, they use the Hebrew word uh, Shaddai, which is used frequently uh, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in that era of Hebrew history. And so it seems most likely that he, the story of Job takes place sometime uh, between Abraham and the Mosaic Covenant, sometime in this patriarchal period. And there's some other reasons, but we won't go into all of those details. Now, another question that eludes us is who wrote Job? It, an author, no one ever claims to be the author. It's just an anonymous writing. Some have suggested that Job himself may have written the book or Elihu, who's one of the characters in the story. One of the main traditional views has been that Moses wrote the book. Others think that Solomon wrote it because of the high poetry and the nature of that. Uh, there's linguistic evidence, apparently, that some commentators and historians link to Hezekiah or Isaiah and think that one of them wrote it. But at the end of the day, we simply don't know who wrote Job. And so one of the things you might have noticed is so far as we try and talk about the context and the contextual background that we do with these books, we don't know very much. We don't really know much about Job. We don't know exactly where he lived. We don't know when he lived. We don't know when it was written. And we don't even know who wrote about him. So there's a whole lot of unknowns when it comes to the book of Job. But there's a beautiful result that comes from that. And that is that this book proves to be a timeless and a universally applicable book. The best context you can really give to this is a man who lived a long time ago in a land far, far away. And yet his story, 
as old as it is and as distant as it is from us, it is extremely applicable to us because in every era of human history, mankind has wrestled with and struggled with the very things that Job and his friends debate and discuss throughout this book. The question of suffering and the question of pain and the question of how and why does God allow people to suffer? If God is all loving, why does he allow us to suffer? If he is all powerful, why doesn't he just defeat evil? These are some of the questions that come up in the moments of intense suffering and pain that people experience. And it doesn't matter if you live in Africa or America or Europe or Asia. It doesn't matter if you lived 5,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago or now or 2,000 years in the future. Pain and suffering and heartache and hardship are a part of the existence that we go through. So these questions become very real and very meaningful. And that is the case in the book of Job. So it becomes universally applicable for all of us. Now, as we talk about the book of Job, it's kind of helpful, at least in my mind, to see the structure of what's taking place. There's three predominant sections in the book of Job. Two are small. There's one very big section. But it begins with a prologue. Then there's the main section that are the speeches. And then there's kind of an epilogue. So a beginning and an end. And then all of the meat that's there in the middle. The prologue takes up the first two chapters. And this is narrative. It's a prose. It's a story. In fact, if you're reading through your Bible and you're reading through it for the first time ever and you're reading you have narrative and narrative now you've got books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy thrown in but by and large it's just story and story and story and then you'd get to the book of Job and you would think that it's going to continue that way because Job chapters 1 and 2 are telling a story it's a narrative but this story is for our benefit as the reader there's no indication anywhere in the text anywhere in the story of Job that Job ever knew about Job chapters 1 and 2 you and I get that benefit as the reader. But Job may have never learned this on this side of eternity. But it's a story that gives us the backdrop to Job's situation. It gives us the perspective that we need to know why Job is suffering so much and why he and his friends are discussing and debating the things that they are so intensely. And then the final chapter of the book is also narrative as it tells about Job's restoration and uh, his uh, forgiveness and the forgiveness of his friends and about his, the restoring of his fortunes. But in between that, from chapters 3 through 41, this is not narrative. This is written in a poetic style. And I think what we have to realize here is Job 3 through 41 is not a verbatim account. Uh, it's not a transcript of what Job and his friends discussed. Nobody talks in high poetry. If you and I were to have a serious debate, an argument, a theological discussion, we wouldn't frame it in poetic words. We would have a discussion. And I'm sure that's what Job and his friends did. But the inspired retelling of this event and the story does so in a poetic fashion. It's an epic poem for us to be able to read through. That doesn't mean the events aren't real, but it does help us, it shapes the conversations in ways for us to follow them. Now, this section here is also broken up into three sections. First of all, uh, chapters 3 through 31 
these are the primary discussions between Job and his friends. There's three friends that are introduced, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Uh, and so we read at the end of chapter 2, when Job has lost everything, when Satan has afflicted him with these boils from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, uh, he is sitting there in, in the ashes, weeping. His wife has told him to just curse God and die. We're told that these three friends come to him, this uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they sit with him in silence for a week, for seven days. They sit with Job, and nobody says anything. They can't even hardly recognize their friend. He's so pained and afflicted and miserable. But then after seven days, in Job chapter 3, Job begins to speak, and he speaks this complaint. He gives voice to his misery and his suffering, and this sparks a debate. Because his friends have been respectful and they've been comforting. And by the way, Job calls them miserable comforters. They give bad advice and they make some mistakes. But sometimes we give them a bad rap. First of all, they are the people that showed up. They are the friends of all of the people that know Job. These are the men that show up. These men sat for seven days saying nothing. But at the end of the day, at the end of this time, they have some concerns and some worries, and they're probably trying to process this situation like Job is. And when Job gives this outburst in chapter 3 about how miserable he is, basically Job says he wishes he would have never been born. And these men start to discuss this situation with him. And there's three cycles of discussion. And all three of them follow the same thing. Uh, Eliphaz starts speaking. He responds to Job's initial outburst. And so he says some things and Job responds. Then Bildad speaks and Job responds. And then Zophar speaks and Job responds. And that takes place three times. The only difference is in the third round, Zophar uh, does not speak at all. He kind of just gives up and doesn't say anything. Uh, but otherwise, all th there's those three rounds, chapters 4 through 14, 15 through 21, and 22 through 25. And so that kind of helps you, uh, at least it helps me when I think about this book and look at this book, if you can segment that and realize what's taking place, there's this debate that's going on, this discussion. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Then after this, Job kind of has his final speech. It's a very long speech. It's a response to them. It's his final complaints, and it's his final desire, where basically he calls God out. And he says, I, to paraphrase, I want God to come answer why this is happening. This is essentially what Job ends up saying. And then we go into the next section where a new character is introduced. This man is a, an enigma. We don't know where he came from. He's not introduced, maybe because he was young. Maybe he's come on the scene later. We don't know really why. But this man named Elihu or Elihu, he begins speaking. We'll talk about him in a moment, but he has several speeches. He has a lengthy monologue made up of multiple speeches from chapters 32 through 37. And then straight out of his uh, speech to Job, then we get to the final discourses, and these are the speeches. This is the discourse from God. Finally, God, God gives Job what he wants, sort of. Job had been saying again and again in these discourses, I want God to talk with me. I want to plead my case before God. Basically, Job does not understand why he is suffering so intensely. And he doesn't think it's fair. And he thinks God owes him an explanation. And so God gives Job what he wants. God comes and talks to him. But it doesn't go the way Job had imagined it would go. 
God is going to issue some challenges to Job in chapters 38 through 41. And so this is the structure, the makeup of the book of Job. Again, mainly it's discourses and speeches that are given in a poetic style. So let's just go through these um, a little bit. First of all, you have the prologue. And by the way, I'm not going to get into details. Um, There's a sermon that I give on Job 1 and 2. Usually when I go to meetings, it's one of my favorite sermons to give. So I have to be careful that I don't just launch off into that because I love teaching on this section of the book of Job. But this again is the prologue. The first few verses, first five verses tell us about who Job is. And then we have this interesting scene. And perhaps um, the most detailed fashion of anywhere in scripture, we have the curtain rolled back for a little while and we're told about some things that are happening in the spiritual realm. There's this day when the sons of God that refers, I believe, to the angels are presenting themselves to God and telling them about the works that they're doing and what they're accomplishing. But Satan is there. Why Satan there? I don't know. Why is he allowed in the throne room of heaven? I'm not sure. We're not told all those answers, but we're told he's there. And God asks him what he's doing. And he says he's just going to and fro. You know, we're just wandering around on the earth. And then God brings up Job. God says, have you considered my servant Job? How he's blameless and upright and fears me and shuns evil. And Satan says, oh, he says he only does that because you've built a hedge around him. And he accuses both Job and God. He accuses Job, essentially, of only serving God from selfish reasons. He says, well, yeah, the man's rich. The man's loved. He's got a family. He's serving you. Basically, Job's just a part of the health and wealth doctrine. He's serving you as long as he's happy. And it's your fault because you give in to him, because you give him wealth and you give him a family and you give him pleasure. You're buying this man's love. Those are the accusations, essentially, that Satan lodges against Job and God. So God says, okay, take away what he has. He says, now you can't touch him. And so Satan goes and you read about these Three events that happen, there's the Sabean raid and the Chaldean rain, and more of the flocks are taken away in a natural disaster. And in just a matter of moments, Job has lost all of his possessions. And then a great windstorm strikes a house where all ten of his children are in it, and Job loses all ten of his children. But at the end of Job chapter 1, when he learns of all this, we're told that Job, he tore his clothes, and he fell down, and he worshipped. He did not do what Satan said he would do. Satan said he would curse God. Instead, Job worshiped God. Well, we're not told that it affected Satan. We're just told that, again, there's another day, chapter 2, when the sons of God are presenting themselves, Satan's there again, and God brings up Job again. He says, if you considered Job, didn't turn out the way you thought it would, did it? Even though you incited me against him, he still is a noble man. Satan just says, well touch his skin. He says, skin for skin, all that a man has will he give for his skin. What he's saying is if you actually touch him, this is how depraved Job is, he doesn't really care about his children, he doesn't really care about his possessions, but if you start afflicting him, he would be so bold as to curse God to his face. So God says, go ahead. He says, you can't kill him, but afflict him. And so Satan goes out and we're told that he touches Job and afflicts him with severe boils. And we don't know if this, was, what, if this was a skin disease, if this was something unique. But Job breaks out in boils from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. If you've ever had a, a sore or a boil or a bad blister or maybe a cut or something that got infected, you know how painful just one sore can be. 
And Job had this all over his body. He's in abject misery. Now, what are we to do with this? You know, we can look at this academically as Job's friends do, but we see a few things. First of all, we see that God allows suffering. But remember Job's perspective. We get to see why this happened. And that helps because we'll be able to notice in the arguments of Job and his friends when they're not quite right because we know the backdrop. We know why Job is suffering to a degree. We know that God has allowed it, but Satan has perpetuated it. We know that actually God is on Job's side and God loves Job and is proud of Job and trusts in Job. But Job doesn't have that perspective. So we get to the discussions. Now, we have these three men, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, there's some things we could draw from the name, but for time's sake, we won't do that. Uh, but one of the things about Job, one of the key themes in Job is wisdom. This is a part of the wisdom literature. And it's kind of a subtle thing, but it's a very important theme in the book of Job. Where does wisdom come from? Chapter 28, that is Job's question, and he answers it. Where does wisdom come from? Now, these three men have their own approach to that question. And as they're trying to figure out what's going on with Job, and as they're trying to help Job do what they think is right, they're trying to approach this as wise men. Now, Job was a righteous, powerful man. And we can assume that these closest friends of his are powerful, knowledgeable men. In some ways, these men probably represent uh, the greatest wisdom that you can combine. The debate that takes place in the book of Job is maybe the greatest, deepest, most profound theological or religious discussion that has ever taken place in the history of the world. But how do these men approach the situation? Well, Eliphaz seems to approach uh, wisdom as something that comes from experience. How you see things and observe things. For example, in Job 4, verses 7 and 8, he tells Job, remember who that was innocent, uh, or remember who, who was it that innocent that ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Basically, what Eliphaz is saying is, think about it, Job. Have you ever seen um, the innocent perish? Have you ever seen the upright cut off? Have you ever seen those who do what's right, get punished, and those that do what's wrong perish. He's saying, what I've seen is that good people are rewarded and bad people are punished. So his, his main source of wisdom is experience. Bildad looks at wisdom as something that is to be learned from ancestors and from the past. In Job 8, verses 8 through 10, he says, Inquire, please, of bygone ages, and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, for our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? So, now, we could use a little bit more of Bildad's perspective in our day and age. It seems like we're in a time period where everybody thinks... You know, years gone by, everybody that came before us were Neanderthals and didn't know anything and had no wisdom, and were just so smart and intelligent. Well, we got here because of the wisdom and knowledge and work of others. But Bildad places a huge emphasis on all those who went before. He says, ask the people that have come before us. And then there's Zophar, who basically, uh, this may be a little uncharitable, but when you read it, Zophar seems to be a bit arrogant. 
and seems to take the view that wisdom is simply possessed by the wise. Either you're one of the wise people or you're not one of the wise people. And if you're one of the wise people, you need to talk and you need to teach. And if you're not one of the wise people, you probably need to just shut up and listen. And this sounds very arrogant, but I can... I feel like I know people who have the same view. There's the intellectuals and there's the non-intellectuals. And you need to know your place. Well, this is the wisdom that comes from, from these men. And while they all approach their answers and where they get their answers from, from slightly different places, they all come to the same conclusion. Job is suffering because he has sinned. Now, Eliphaz thinks he has learned this from experience and observation. Bildad thinks he's learned this because of what others have always taught. And by the way, this is called retribution theology. The idea that God, all suffering is the result of God's displeasure for sin. And that has been historically a very common idea. You suffer, you, it's because you've sinned. So that would have been something they learned from those gone by. And Zophar just thinks that he's been blessed with knowledge and knows this. Now, there's an aspect of truth to all of these approaches. You, one of the ways we learn, one of the ways we grow wisdom is by experience. That's why it does take age to get, to get wisdom because until we've had some experiences, it's hard to really have wisdom. But our experiences are not perfect. Neither are they exhaustive. That's one of the things that the book of Job is going to teach us. This world, our life, it is far too complex for us to ever think that our experiences give us all the knowledge that we need. We don't even fully understand why these light bulbs come on when we flip a switch. Maybe you understand about electricity and wiring. Maybe you understand even more than that. But I doubt there's anybody here that could truly explain all the facets of light waves and the electromagnetic spectrum and how that all works. And that's just turning on a light switch. Our experience is not enough to know everything. And the experience of others aren't either. Even the culmination of knowledge passed down from thousands of years of finite human beings is not enough to know everything. And we certainly, certainly do not want to rely simply on our own knowledge. But that's what these men are doing. And so we have these discussions that take place, these three rounds of discussions. And basically, to sum it up, the friends take this view, God punishes the wicked with suffering. Job is suffering intensely, so Job must have sinned and needs to repent. And one thing you find through these, these discussions, as happens in all prolonged debates and arguments, it just ratchets up and up. When you first start, Eliphaz is the first one that speaks, and he's pretty respectful, and he's pretty nice, and he kind of seems to be pleading with Job, basically, Job, think about it. God punishes the wicked, and you're suffering pretty bad. There must be something that you're doing. It doesn't take long, though. Job's in pain. And Job's in mental anguish, so Job doesn't respond to that very well. And then Bildad and Zophar, it just keeps piling on. By the time you get through to this, these guys are in an all-out fight. In fact, by the third discussion, these friends are making up sins. They're coming up with, you must be guilty of this. 
One of the things that they seem to think Job must be guilty of is greed. They basically just start coming up with accusations. And it gets out of hand very quickly. So Job, again, every time one of them speaks, Job responds. And then another speaks and Job responds. And Job, now we have to remember, one person I read or, or, or listened to made a good point. They said, we have to realize Job is on an emotional roller coaster. Job has suffered unbelievable loss. Job is in physical agony. And Job's theology is in question. One of the things the book of Job does is it paints a picture of something we experience sometimes. What happens when your theology meets applicability and they don't match? What happens when all the high things that you think comes crashing into your day-to-day life and they don't work together? And that's where Job is. And so Job is kind of all over the place. There's things that Job says that are way off base. And there's things that Job says that are wonderful. For example, some of the things that Job says, he, he believes his suffering is unfair because he, he never claims perfection. But I think Job's big complaint is, yes, the wicked suffer, but look at how much I'm suffering. He says, basically, no one has suffered like this, but I'm not perfect, but I know I'm not that bad. I know there's people that are way worse than I've been, and they've never felt a tenth of what I'm experiencing. And so Job feels that God is punishing him and doing so unfairly. And because of this, Job multiple times makes comments that he wants an explanation from God. He believes that God should explain why he's suffering. And Job gets very close. In fact, Job may even just go over the line of self-righteousness. As he's defending himself multiple times, he basically says, I know I'm right. And if God himself were here, He'd vindicate me if he would just go ahead and talk with me and really look at this. So there's some downsides to Job's arguments. Job goes to some dark places. And over and over again, he says, life is futile. This is pointless. I just wish I would die. But then there's these highs as well where Job is amazing. And despite all of the suffering and the pain, he still hopes in God. For example, in Job 19, verse 25 and 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. One of perhaps the greatest verses that point to an understanding, even in the ancient days, of the resurrection. And here's something to hold on to in the book of Job. Um, Because we go through this. And we, I hope none of us will ever suffer like Job did. But all of us suffer. And we try and put on our best face and we know what's right. But when we begin suffering intently, we go through that roller coaster. Whether we verbalize it with everyone or not, whether we have friends that are close enough with us to hash it out like Job did or not, in our minds we probably go through this same thing. And we probably begin to ask why 
and we probably begin to think it's unfair, and we probably begin to think, I wish God would let me know why or just fix it. And that's okay to a point. The one thing Job does that we also have to do is he never lets go of God. I think he's angry at God. I think there are times he almost loses trust in God, but he knows he can't. And so he clings to God throughout the process. And that really is the saving grace for Job. Now, as these discussions end, Job has this long speech, 26 through 31. And we're not going to go into all of these, but Job 28 is a key chapter because Job asks an important question. Where is wisdom found? Multiple times he asks, where is wisdom found? Basically, he's confronting his friends who have gone to all these other sources, and, and he says, none of you are right. He, he also tells them, I know what you know. Basically, Job plays the, the, the trump card. You're not smarter than me. I've had the same experiences you have. I know the same teachers you do. Might have looked at Zophar and been like, I'm smarter than you are. And none of these make sense. Where does wisdom come from? And Job answers it. Verse 23, God understands the way to it and he knows its place. That is a key element of the book of Job. So put that in the back of your mind for a moment. God is the source of wisdom. But as wonderful as that speech gets, chapter 31 Chapter 30, 31, Job kind of gives his final vindication. And basically he goes through all these things. If I've done this, if I've done that, if I can be accused of this. And his point is, I'm not guilty of these things. And verse 35, a few verses before he wraps up, he says this. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Notice where Job's at by the end of this in all of his frustration. God is his adversary. He's basically given his list of qualifications and he says, here is my signature. Job is reaching the height of self-righteousness. He's saying, you know what, God, come talk to me. I'm ready for you to explain yourself because I feel pretty good about who I am. I'm ready for you to come talk to me about it. And you might expect the thunderbolt there. You might expect God to come in right then. But something very interesting happens. A new person comes on the scene. One of the greatest enigmas in scripture. Right behind probably Melchizedek. A man named Elihu or Elihu. He wasn't mentioned. He wasn't one of the three friends. But based on what he says, he's apparently been sitting there for a while. Why they let this guy come, I don't know. When he came, we don't know. What we do know is he's given more background than any of the others. The others are just uh, kind of their general, uh, the Temanite or whatever, or the Naamathite. But this man, we're told he is Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram. So I don't know why all of these are given, but we're told quite a bit about him compared to the others. Now, he is younger. In fact, he says, I've sat here and listened to you because I'm young. And I let age speak. This is a wise man, even though he's young. He says the older should get the opportunity to speak. The problem is age doesn't always equate to rightness. 
And this man has sat there listening to Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, and he's gotten angrier and angrier. And finally he speaks. See, see Job, Zophar wouldn't even finish. Job has said his piece, and they all just kind of sit there. They're at an impasse. So Elihu starts talking. And he's mad at Job. We're told he's angry at Job because Job justified himself instead of God. And that's exactly what Job had done. Job over and over again basically said, I am right, this is unfair, God owes me an explanation. But he's also angry with these other three men because they had accused Job and accused, they had assumed Job must be a terrible sinner. But they were never able to prove it. And they were never able to say what was right. They never gave any real answers. And so Elihu, he rebukes Job's friends. He rebukes God. He then begins to defend God's justice. And then he begins to proclaim God's greatness. And there's a lot of, you can read. Some people think Elihu was just an arrogant brat. Some people think he was a prophet. Some people think he was a divine messenger. You are all over the board on commentators. But something interesting happens in chapter 37. And this is just the recreation of my mind. But in chapter 37, Elihu begins discussing and describing the greatness of God. And he does so describing a storm. He begins describing thunder and lightning and wind and God's power. And when we get to chapter 38, it says that God spoke from the whirlwind. It doesn't tell us where it came from. All of a sudden, there's just a whirlwind on the scene. When you back up to chapter 37, that seems to be exactly what Elihu is describing. And it's almost as if he comes to the end of his speeches and he begins proclaiming the greatness of God. He's kind of the forerunner. He's setting up what God is going to say. Job said he was ready for God to speak. Elihu preps him for it. And as he's speaking, these clouds begin forming and the earth becomes darker and the thunder begins to rumble and the lightning begins to crash and the wind begins to tear around them. And when I read Job 37, I can't help but read Elihu was almost shouting by the end to overcome the wind and the storm. And there's literally a whirlwind, perhaps something like a tornado that's taking place right around Job and his friends. And then God speaks. And we don't hear anything more about Elihu after that. It's kind of interesting. But now God speaks to Job. Job's going to get what he asked for and a whole lot more. Basically, God gives Job two challenges. First of all, he challenges Job's knowledge. He asks Job question after question after question about creation about the earth, about the universe, about the constellations. He says, have you ever done this? Do you know this? Take the example I used earlier about electricity and multiply it a million times. God actually never makes very many statements. He just asks Job question after question. What's the purpose? He's challenging Job's knowledge. Job has sat here and said, I know I'm right, and God owes me an explanation. And God basically asks, how much do you really think you know, Job? And Job gets the point. 
at the end, God, God basically stops at this point and says, okay, what do you want to say for yourself? Job had been dying this whole time to give an answer for himself. And, and Job says, uh, or God says to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job says, I'm not going to say anything right now. He says, I should be quiet. And so God speaks again. And now Job, God questions Job's strength. And he describes these two creatures. A lot of speculation has gone into these two creatures, behemoth and leviathan. Some people think that's a hippopotamus and a crocodile. I think the Bible describes something a lot bigger and a lot fiercer than a hippopotamus and a crocodile. Those are fierce things. But they're nothing in comparison with what is described in the latter part of Job. Some people think they're dinosaurs. Some people think they're uh, other things. Whatever they are, they're massive, monstrous, powerful, and dangerous creatures. But as God speaks of them, you almost get a hint that God is proud of them. These are a part of his creation. And they're creatures that instill nothing but fear in man. And man has no power over them. And these are just two of God's creatures. Basically, God's asking Job, what can you do if you confront Leviathan or Behemoth? All Job could do is die. God created them. And they're just small pieces of God's creation. Through all these questions, basically God reminds Job, you don't have the knowledge and you don't have the power to question me. I like the way one commentator put it. He said, Job is shown that before he or any other criticizes the Almighty for the way he rules the universe, he should know better than God how to do it. We listen to people that are skeptics that get so upset about the way the world is, and we don't even know how the world works. Sometimes we ourselves wonder why things are done the way they are. We don't even understand how our own bodies work. We simply don't know enough. And Job figured this out. Let's read Job's answer in Job 42, verses 2 through 6. I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel with knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job confesses, paraphrase I was really stupid to say the things that I did I thought that I knew God and then I met him and I repent in dust and ashes he's not knowledgeable enough to question God he's not strong enough to question God so what should he do what he knew he should have done all along just trust in him. So as we think about the book of Job, what does it answer? 
I've heard, I've even said things before, or sometimes people say the book of Job addresses the problem of pain and suffering. It talks about pain and suffering, it doesn't answer it. Does it give us the answer to why the righteous suffer? It does not. Does it give us the answer of whether God is just to let us suffer? Really, it does not. The only thing in this list that it actually answers, when you go back and you read what God says to Job, he never answers Job's questions. Not a single one. Never tells Job about the backdrop. He never says, Job, by the way, you know, the reason you're going through this is because I was pretty proud of you. Doesn't tell Job that. He just questions Job's knowledge and power. The only answer in the book of Job to any of these is that last question, where is wisdom found? Where is real wisdom found? It's found in God. And so our answer to all of these other things is trust in Him. Our own lives are so complex, we don't understand them. Our communities, our nations, our world, this universe... All of it is so big and so vast, we cannot comprehend even the smallest parts of it. And living thousands of years later than Job and learning all that we have, it's not made us much better off. We still don't know it all. And so we don't get to ask God these questions. We don't get to tell God, explain to me why I'm suffering right now. Because the truth is, if he answered it, we couldn't comprehend it. That's the thing. If we got the answers we wanted, we're not big enough, strong enough, knowledgeable enough to even understand. And so we have to trust in God. When Paul says things like in Romans 8, that all things worked for good to those who placed their trust in Him. We have to take that statement on faith because there's nobody here or that's ever lived that's going to be able to draw you a diagram and a mathematical equation to prove it. We can't understand it. But we can trust in God. We can trust in the one who does have all the answers, who does have all the power. And we can be eternally grateful that that one is loving and merciful. As we wrap up and we look at the epilogue, Job repents, and then God rebukes the friends. Now, there were elements of truth in some of the things that they said, but it wasn't all true, and they came to some wrong conclusions. And God rebukes them, and he says, you need to have Job pray for you. And they offer a sacrifice, and Job prays for them. <laughs> And they're forgiven. Now, nothing said of Elihu or Elihu. God doesn't rebuke him. God doesn't say anything about him. So my assumption is what he had said was correct. He had prepared the way for God. But then we read that God restores Job's, Job's fortune. And two, two points that I want to make about this. First of all, he doubles everything. Or that's what it says. If you read the numbers of sheep and oxen and camels, it's all doubled in Job chapter 42, except for the children. Job had had seven sons and three daughters. And in the end, Job doesn't get 14 sons and six daughters. He gets seven sons and three daughters. So they're not doubled. Why is that? It's because they are doubled. 
But all those, those sheep and those camels and donkeys and all that, when they were gone, when they were killed, they were gone. But when Satan brought about a disaster that took those ten children, they're not gone. Not forever. Because this world is not all there is. And Satan can't do anything about that. And Job was going to have to wait at least another 140 years. But Job would get to be reunited with those children. I have every confidence they were faithful children with a father like Job. The fact that God allowed them to be taken away in this disaster. He would be reunited with them and he was given 10 more. And now that wasn't to replace those children. Nothing was going to replace the loss of those 10 children. Sometimes there's just heartache and hardship in this life. But it will all be made well in the end. But the other point, and this is something I read and thought about more this time around going through Job. Why did God restore Job's fortunes? It's easy to read and feel like this is God kind of making up for all of the suffering that Job had gone through. Or God's rewarding Job because he passed the test. It's none of those things. Job did not earn the blessings. Job did not deserve the blessings. God was not making right something he had done wrong. He did not owe Job anything. So why did he do it? Because he loved Job. Because he's gracious because he's merciful, because he wanted to give Job this incredible gift. And in so doing, it reminds all of God's people, many of whom have never lived with the suffering Job did, nor with the physical well-being that Job did. But it reminds us that even though we don't deserve it, even though we haven't earned it, God has lovingly given us the gift of salvation. And James, this is the last verse we'll read, and then we'll close. The book of James reminds us of Job. And he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You want to talk about complex answers? What if God would have showed up to Job when he demanded it, and Job said, I want to know why I'm suffering this way. And God showed up and he said, well, you're suffering right now and you've lost everything because I am compassionate and merciful. That wouldn't have made a lot of sense to Job, would it? But in God's grand scheme and in God's power, what started as a challenge from Satan was going to result in a greater relationship between Job and God. And God valued that more than Job's immediate pleasure, well-being, etc. So we can trust in God too. And we remember that our responsibility is not to know everything and certainly not to question, but to endure and to trust and to remain and hold steadfast, never letting go of God and trusting in his compassion and his mercy. I think one of the most beautiful 
summaries of the book of Job that I, I read, and I don't have it memorized, and I didn't write it down, uh, but one man said, the book of Job is a book about a relationship. It's about a relationship that goes through some highs and lows. It's about a relationship that is questioned and stretched and at the point of breaking. But Job never let go of God, and God never let go of Job. And what a beautiful story that is. And it's a story for us. It's an old story of a man a long time ago, a long ways away. But it's our story. We're going through life. We're going to have hardships. God will not let go. Will you? Or will you cling to him and hold to him? Like Job did.